G'day there, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of Beyond the Club. This is where we discuss the 81 fund determinants by dimension. So what we're saying there, Amanda Vysek has come up with 81 things that are fun for people to be involved in, whether it's training or games, and we just try and give you some practical examples of what they are. I'm Ben Hook. I'm joined by Dr. Sam Elliott. Sam, g'day. G'day, Hooky. How are you? Yeah, mate, really well. Amanda Vysek, just very quickly give us an overview of this work. Yeah, again, this is a really great paper, highly cited. It's basically a fun mapping exercise with children to determine what makes sport fun and what she's come up with up to 81 at its broadest level, 81 determinants of what we can do in sport as coaches and clubs to make sport more fun, more enjoyable for kids. We've got five more that we're going to add to our list today. The first one you have described, or Amanda has described, as having people cheer at the game. What's fun about that? Yeah, really, really contentious one, I think, because some people might hear that and think, oh, geez, we don't want too many parents from the sideline cheering in an overzealous manner, overcoaching, all those sorts of things. So what this... Let's start with what the evidence tells us. This particular study has indicated that cheering is a source of fun for kids. So we need to, firstly, be listening to what children want. Children do identify that cheering from the sideline is a source of fun. Where that becomes problematic is when we start to see the emergence of other things that happen from the sideline as well. Maybe some abusive behaviour, yes. some 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 overcoaching, some some overzealous types of sideline involvement, and what we tend to see in sport is that clubs and organisations have this zero tolerance sort of approach. It's like you know what, we're going to ban all verbal yes. engagements from the sideline. Let's dumb everything down yep. in case we get some bad stuff. Yep, baby, out with the bathwater. And so this is why when I and I published on this, when we are talking about interventions or some kind of restrictive approaches to improve parent behavior from the sideline, the answer, and I need to be really clear here, the answer is not. It is not to silence all adults, all parents from the sideline. Now, I can't say that universally across all sports, but in the mainstream sports in Australia, I would argue that that is a anti-science approach for I guess, promoting enjoyment in sport because it goes against one of the really key sources of fun that children identify. So we need to try and find a way to distinguish cheering, encouraging, supportive verbal engagements from the sideline away from the abusive and sometimes risky behaviours that, of course, can be detrimental for children. So managing poor behaviour is important, but at the same time, encouraging people to be a positive, constructive, audible voice is what kids find fun. Yeah, absolutely. And what you tend to see here, Hooky, is a lot of clubs and coaches and, and, and organisations more broadly leave this to chance. The most common ideology is that people should know how to behave. Yeah. Common sense, Sam, surely. I mean, I, I've done talkback radio on this topic <laughs> for years and there's always someone driving home and says, surely this is just a matter of common sense. But sport is an emotive game and there are a range of stresses that families and coaches are dealing with at any point particular point. So it's about equipping families, about equipping all of the people that might cheer from the sideline with the type of informational support and maybe even some training to be able to distinguish how and when they might need to manage their emotions Mm. during competition. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big believer that managing emotions shouldn't be as hard as what we make it out to be. The the one thing I hate is I couldn't help it. You can help it. Just don't do it. Point number two. 
playing against an evenly matched team. Now, I remember my junior sporting days. I used to love flogging teams by 20 goals in footy or a couple hundred runs in cricket, but that's not what the determinant of fun is. Kids like to be involved in tight matches. If, if you were to say uh, across a 20-game season, would you rather play in 20 games where you're going to win comfortably every single time or you can have a season of evenly matched teams where you may win, you may lose, but you are evenly matched. Mm. Some people have a bit of anxiety and think, you know what, the way in which I'm going to avoid this situation of potential threat is to take the guaranteed win, to take the, the easy road. Okay, sure. So some people are naturally inclined to, to seek out those types of opportunities. But again, what does this particular research tell us? Evenly matched teams are a vital, they're a vital source of fun. And let me explain why. What they are really saying in the literature is how do we match challenge with children's skill level? Mm. Okay. And if you do that in the research, we call this a zone of proximal development. You might've heard it in sport where you might find yourself in a state of flow. You might find yourself in the moment. Um, you're almost seeing things as they happen, even before they happen. You're at your best point of athletic development when you are at a point of proximal development, which is right on the periphery of your capability as an individual. Well, these children enjoy evenly matched teams. And the reason why it's enjoyable is because their challenge of another evenly matched team meets their skill or their capability. And so this, it becomes a bit of an unknown. You yeah. really are, in those instances, challenging yourself in an authentic way. Why this matters? Well, the research tells us that kids will be more competent at their sport. They will be more confident, so a high level of self-belief. And those are closely tied, especially confidence, are closely tied to developing resilience. So you can cut this in a number of ways, but if you want resilient young kids, tighten up the margins of competition. If okay. I'm engineering an, a league, I want children to be at approximate level of, of ability. They don't need to all be on a perfectly even playing field. There can be different levels of ability, but you don't want those margins to be too extreme. Mm, mm. And I guess that there, and we've probably talked about it before, that winning is actually a determinant of fun. And I guess it can be quite demoralising for kids who are forever on the end of significant losses as well. That can be a real detractor of fun. Absolutely. What happens if you're playing cricket and you lose by three runs? Yeah, you're disappointed, but it's a thrill, isn't it? It's a thrill, but what I mean, the next time you go and play them, there's still a self-belief that, hey, we might be 0-1 against this team. The Bedford Park Bullfrogs may be 0-1 against the Adelaide Airport Ants, but... If the margins were close enough that you're still within an arm's reach, there's still a level of self-belief that you can get the job done next time. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's really important that evenly matched teams, we call this competition engineering. And if you can engineer a little bit more of an even competition, then children ultimately are going to be more confident, more competent, confident and competent. Uh, and especially with confidence, it's a, it's a key ingredient for developing resilience. Nice. Point number three, being around your friends. Self-explanatory or is there a bit more to it than that? Look, it is self-explanatory, but I'll just add a couple of layers to this. Nice. Why does it matter? Well, you could be in a really strong relationship with your family unit, maybe with your coach. So what is it about your teammates in sport that is so fun, so enjoyable? Why is it ultimately so important? Number one, it validates emotion. Okay, and it's really important, especially from, say, like 11, 12 years of age, maybe right through to 15, 16. So through those those specialising years of sport, why does that matter? Well, your social approval tends to trump family approval. So when mum and dad say, hey, you had a really good game on the weekend, mm -hmm. often it's water off a duck's back. 
But when you hear that from your peers, it's like, you know what, hooky, I just want to say, mate, like, you know, I know have a bit of banter of it. You played an outstanding game on the weekend. Yeah. It means more at certain I have no. I think you still get that kind of feedback, but this is a critical time point of a child's development. Social validation is actually a really, really important marker of of, of shaping identity and mm. and of I guess self esteem and those kind of things. So, really important to validate emotions. But the other thing that we know is that if you can develop really strong friendships through sport, you're a better communicator. You're more likely to have greater civic responsibility, more likely to be a volunteer later on. So maximising opportunities to develop friendships through sport, yes, is fun, but it also has strong benefits for their life. Love it. Great. Let's move on to point number four, going out to eat as a team. I've got to say, I do remember, even if it was just something like the trip to McDonald's as a as a small group after a sports match, they were great memories. Absolutely. And there's a strong tradition. I won't say which football clubs are because I don't know 100% off the top of my head, but at Faster Pasta Brighton, there's always on a Friday night a group of young men, certainly from what I've observed, sitting down religiously every Friday night to eat pasta together, mm. eat a meal together. And you can see, at least in your mind, why that might be logical and that might build culture and those kind of things. But what it really does in the literature, how we explain that, is that it's an example of close proximity. The closer you spend, the more time you spend with something, the big brother house, mm. how do you take a group of 24 individuals and suddenly, in a very, very short period of time, they become friends? How does that happen? It doesn't just happen overnight. No. You may actually not like a lot of the things about another person you just met, but over sustained periods of time, close proximity increases team cohesion. So that's the reason why these additional opportunities to share a meal together are crucially important because you don't sit there and just eat your meal and say nothing. There's mm. usually conversation happening around the table. It also enhances what we might understand as a sense of belonging. And so, well, why does, why does belonging matter? Well, it's associated with improved problem solving, which in sport is a pretty good skill. It's, in, uh, it's associated with improved decision-making. So instead of being sitting on the fence and not knowing what to do and being indecisive, what we actually know is that if you have a sense of belonging, if you've got stronger social security around you, you're more able to make decisions. Really important. And the other one that we know in the research is that it's associated with decreasing negative mood and emotion. Mm. So really, really important Team unity or team cohesion comes from close proximity and close proximity, I should say, comes from, in this example, spending time together, maybe a ritual such as eating a meal before the game or even after the game. That's a really interesting one. I was even thinking that it might just break down the hierarchy of a sports team that little bit. I mean, if you and I are both playing for Bedford Park and you're the gun player and I'm just one of the bit part players... But once the group of us are sitting down having a meal together, we're all ordering from the same menu where we're on the same plane, we're on the same level. And I just wonder if that has a maybe subconsciously just a bit of an appreciation for people who maybe feel like when they're a part of the team, they're not the guy, but everyone's on the same level when you get into those sorts of environments. Absolutely, because the marker of eating a meal together is measured by, well, do you turn up? Do you eat? Can you talk to someone? Yeah. Different to on the field where you might be marked in a hierarchy of most goals, best player, you know, those kind of things. So it's a different type of measure and it's one that really does, I guess, promote those feelings of belonging and connectedness. And it's just one obvious thing that someone who's a coach or a manager of a team can say, hey, we could incorporate that into our monthly plan. So we've got maybe a seven-month season together. 
seven times, let's just find an opportunity to go out and have a meal together. That's yep. a fantastic little idea. Last one, wearing a special cool uniform, and I love this. Tell us a bit about that. Okay, so this is an easy one, and it probably relates to the broader concept of team concept. But we know, of course, in the research that in order to maximise your commitment, not just to sport, but to any task, your work, your relationships, what you ultimately need to endeavour to develop is both an individual and a collective identity. Now, it's a topic of conversation right now because, you know, should we look at Ben as a, a middle-aged man or as, as Ben? And so there's conversations whether your individual identity should trump or come second to collective identity. I don't want to get into that conversation, but I do want to highlight the research indicates that both individual and collective identity matter. They matter because they fundamentally equate to your engagement and your commitment to task. So, where we draw that line or that parallel to uniform. If you've got a team concept that unifies, okay, something that brings people together, something that actually enhances collective identity, suddenly we're all wearing our Bedford Park bullfrog hoodies, mm. that type of collective identity coupled with a really strong sense of individual identity equals high commitment, high level of motivation, high level of engagement for task. Mm. So really important. The next time, if I'm a club president and I'm organising the uniforms for the following year, one of the things that really matter is that they are there. They are The, the clothing is ready on day one. Right. Because that is the fuel that's going to actually sort of build up that collective identity that we call it buy-in, don't we, in sport? Like people buying into culture and, and trying to sort of walk the talk. That kind of tool, okay, just having your uniform or whatever it might be that unifies the team from day one not only enhances that sense of collective identity and if they have a strong sense of self, okay, equals really strong commitment and engagement for the task. You talk about uh, a strong sense of self in amongst this cool uniform. Do you like uh, names on uniforms as a way of individualising the cool uniform? Yes. Yes. Let me. So this, this reiterates my exact point here. You are still Ben Hook. Yeah. You are still Ben Hook. I know one, you know, Twitter, whatever it might be. So, so if you've got a nickname or if you've got some kind of informal role or responsibility in your club and, and you, you're known for it, I would be encouraging that because that emphasizes the individual. But it's also part of this collective uh, strategy of team uniform and team concept. So, mm. that's a really good example. Yeah, I, I still remember the first time I got a, sh- a playing shirt, cricket, with my name on the back. And I thought that was, that was such an experience. And you can do that so easily now with the way that uh, uniform manufacturers can come up with these sorts of things. So it's something that you can incorporate. Absolutely. And uniforms are not the only way, but this is just one example of that. So really start to think about if you're if you're listening out there, the clubs, the, the presidents, the coaches, whoever's in charge of these types of decisions inside the club, especially an engagement strategy with young kids, what is your unifying strategy? What is your thing that builds collective identity, we rather than I? You also want to be thinking about, okay, how can we make sure that there's still individual identity and individual, I guess, footing as they move into your sporting environment? Both are really important. And if you do that, you're going to maximize commitment. Brilliant. Let's just recap those very quickly. Point number one, having people cheer at your game. Positive, encouraging voices are good things in sport. Don't dumb down everyone's voice just because you're worried about the negative voice. Point number two, 
Play against an evenly matched team. So for administrators, it's important to try and create as even a competition as possible. doesn't have to be perfect, but you should have something relatively even. Point number three, being around your friends. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? But just having the opportunity to share these experiences with those around you does increase your own sense of belonging. Yeah, validation from your peers, most important thing as part of child development. Yeah, it's a really good idea. Going out to eat as a team, we discussed that. That's something you can easily incorporate. And wearing that special cool uniform, and if you have the capacity, the resources to do it, get the person's name on the team kit. That's something that really matters a lot to kids as well. 100%. Brilliant little episode, Sam. That's yet another of our bonus episodes. The 81 Determinants of Fun. It's thank you to Amanda Vasek. You've been listening to Sam Elliott and Ben Hook, and this is a bonus episode of Beyond the Club. We'll see you soon.